setting of, of the book that we've been in for the last few weeks. So uh, the way that, that Philippians works, right? Philippians is a letter. It was a letter that Paul wrote to a church, which means that, that when Paul sent this letter back by messenger to this church, right, there would have been a service where the messenger got up and read the letter. So I want, I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine with me being in the room where this redder, this redder, this, this letter is being read for the first time, okay? So uh, we, we, prob- we would probably be in this woman Lydia's house, okay? So we learn in Acts 16 that Lydia was the first person to trust Christ in the city of Philippi. So she was this cosmopolitan woman. She was a merchant. And she ran this import-export business for purple dye, which was very expensive at the time, okay? And she had her own household and this business that she managed. And she came to trust Christ, and she invited Paul to stay at her house. And her home kind of became a center of ministry in the city. So we're probably, we'd probably be at Lydia's house. And looking around, this would be a full room. We would see kind of off to the side, there's this Roman family, maybe uh, an, ex-military, an ex-military guy who was a prison guard who became uh, a Christian when the chains fell off of Paul, but he remained in prison. He told the, the guy, hey, don't, don't kill yourself. All the prisoners are here. It's gonna be okay. And that night, the, the Roman guard and all of his family trusted in Christ. They were all baptized. So that family's there. There's this woman who used to be a slave and who was possessed. And because she was possessed, she would actually tell fortunes, okay? And Paul again, in this ministry, cast the demon out of this woman and she lost her livelihood. Well, her, her master lost his livelihood because he couldn't sell her anymore. So this woman has now had to find a totally new life. And so we have, we'd have this sister in the room with us who was trying to figure out what it means to live this totally new life. And it's a room that's gonna be full of other people as well because we see in Acts 16 and through some other context clues that there are a whole lot of people who came to to trust Christ through this ministry. So we'd be in a, in a full room. It'd be as comfortable as you could be in a room in the ancient world with no air conditioning, right? So we're all there. And our friend, Epaphroditus, is back. So we, previously, we would have taken up a collection, right? And we gave our friend this money to take to Paul because Paul had to pay the cost of his own house arrest. Yikes. So we sent somebody with Epaphroditus and we encouraged Paul through our friend and our friend is back and he tells us, hey, Paul has responded to some of our questions. He has some stuff he wants to say to us and so he would be up here reading a letter and we would be hanging on every word, right? Because this man who was like a spiritual father to us, a friend, a mentor, is reminding us of what is true about us in Christ. And he's written to us about some some really deep truth reminding us who Jesus is, what it means that Jesus came to earth, that God came and and put on a body and lived humbly and died on a cross. And he's been exhorting us that we would would love each other that way, that we would love each other in self-sacrificing ways even. And at this point, we would have been listening to, uh, to Epaphroditus read the letter for about 10 minutes. So I read it up till this point. I was timing it out. So we've been listening for a while. You know, our attention is still probably pretty good. And then we get to Philippians 4.1. So can we get that up on the screen? Okay, so I want you to imagine that you're hearing this for the first time. And this is what Paul is saying to you. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You're like, oh, yes. The warm fuzzies. Like, Paul, I love you too. I miss you. And then Paul says this. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Synecdoche, Syntyche, I don't, we'll just go with me, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. What? 
like, this is a hard turn, Paul. And you know, Yudia and the Syntyche, they're sitting here in the room with us. And we're all like, oh, geez. Probably everyone like kind of gets a little bit shifty in their seats. Everyone's trying to like look in the cor- out of the corner of their eye, but like not, dr- not draw too much attention, right? And he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Whoa. Whose names are, are in the book of life. So what Paul has just done is he's called out these two women and the conflict that they're having in front of the whole church. What are your thoughts about that? Might come across as kind of rude, right? At least not very tactful, perhaps. Like, Paul, I can think of a lot of ways, maybe, uh, that you could have done that better. What Paul was doing was actually profoundly loving. That what Paul was doing in this letter is he was fighting for the unity, for the health, for the maturity, for the joy of his friends in Philippi for the well-being of these women and for the entire church. And that has implications for us in the way that we do our life together as a church. And we're going to talk about three of those implications that we get from this letter, okay? That Paul calls us to reckon with, with conflict in our lives. So there's a reckoning that we're called to in this passage. There's also a spiritual reality that Paul is tuning us into. And then he lays out the possibility of reconciliation. So a reckoning, spiritual reality, and the possibility of reconciliation. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning through the, through the lens of this passage. So I'm going to read it one more time, kind of all together, then we'll pray and, and get into it. So this is Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Pray with me. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we just acknowledge here this morning that, that this word was a word that was written to real people who are living a very real life just like we are. And ask, God, that you would uh, kind of across time and context, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate, illuminate these words to our heart this morning. That you'd be speaking to us uh, what you have to say to us because we believe that you do that through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk a little bit about the conflict that, that is going on between these women. What we know about it, what we don't know about it. Because that kind of orientation is going to help us learn what it means for us to reckon with conflict in our own lives, okay? So uh, we see this in verse two. I entreat Yudia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What that tells us is that these women are having a conflict. They're experiencing conflict in their life, right? And there's a lot of things that we don't know about the conflict because Paul doesn't tell us. But the fact that Paul doesn't tell us certain things about this conflict tells us certain things about this conflict, Okay, does that make sense? Are you with me? So what we, know, what we know is that this was not a major theological dispute because Paul has zero problem weighing in on big theological disputes, right? The book of Galatians is about that. So there were people in this church in Galatia who had come in and were starting to teach things that were contrary to the gospel. And Paul says to the church, that's a big problem. 
and I'm going to tell you about it, and I'm going to correct the misunderstandings in this letter. Well, we know that's not what's happening here because Paul always corrects those things. We also know that what is happening here is not some kind of like a major sin issue because Paul is also very bold to call out those things, right? He does that in 1 Corinthians. There's a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, guys, this is out of control. This is shameful. No one does this stuff. And so he's giving them instructions about how to deal with this sin in the church. Well, that's not what's happening here, right? So it tells us that it's not kind of a major sin issue like that. So what that means is that there is a conflict here that is an interpersonal conflict. Maybe it started over something else and it became interpersonal. Maybe it was always interpersonal. We don't know. But there is a tension now between these women, and it is serious. And it's threatening to divide this church. Right? The whole time, Paul's been encouraging him all throughout this letter, your unity is really important. The mission that you were on together is really important. Don't be divided. And this conflict has had the potential to divide the church, and so Paul is addressing it head on. These women are leaders in the congregation. They're mature followers of Christ. And that confronts us, doesn't it, with a really hard reality. But it is possible, it's possible, that you could have two people who are devoted, mature followers of Jesus, and that they will experience, they could, they could experience intense interpersonal conflict. And it would be easy to say, well, you know, that happened in the church in Philippi, but what about us? No, that's true here. Even now, there is conflict in our church. That's just true. No, don't worry. I'm not going to call out any of your names, okay? And I'm not, I'm not speaking to anything specific. It's not like there's this thing I'm trying to angle at that we're not really going to address. That would be the opposite of what's happening in this passage, right? But that's just the reality of being a part of, a, of an institution that has people who are a part of it. Because part of being a human is that conflict with other humans is inevitable. Not just in church. People like to caricature church that way, right? It's like church is a place where all these, these, these like petty, this petty infighting and like bickering and gossiping. And guys, that's not just a church thing. That's a, that's a person thing. Any place that there are people, there are those things. And because there are people here, that's true here. That's why in our small groups, that Lindsay was talking about, you know, we have these guidelines. And what is the guideline that speaks to this? This is a chance for interaction this morning. If you're in a small group, we have these guidelines. There's a guideline that speaks to this principle. Resolve conflict biblically. Yes, for, that's, yes, thank you. That's, that's a guideline that we have. We call it out because we say, if you're gonna be in a discipleship group, if you're gonna be living life with people who are trying to help you mature in Christ, there is going to be conflict. And so our commitment is not to there not being conflict. Our commitment is gonna be toward resolving that conflict biblically. Because many of us, and that's, that's shocking to many of us, because we, will, we would intellectually say, well, of course, where there's people, they are gonna, there's gonna be conflict. But, functionally, most of us don't live our lives that way, right? That conflict is so scary to us that the way we live our lives is we think the absence of conflict is when something is good. And we know that's true because conflict is so surprising to us. It's so disorienting. That's why we have so little stamina to be in it. That's why we hide from it. Many of us structure our lives to avoid it. 
And I know some of you are saying, oh, that's not true about me. I love conflict. I doubt it. <laughs> it might be true, maybe. But for a lot of us, our love of conflict is actually, a, stay with me, an avoidance of conflict, right? That sometimes there, there are some of us who love to, who love to argue. And, and we, we think about it as if what we're arguing about is a way of like doing conflict. That's not always true. Often the conflicts that we have that we like to fight about at the dinner table are just a way of avoiding other conflicts that are under the surface, right? So we're actually hiding from the real conflict by going to a different conflict. Not always, but that's, that's sometimes the case. And when we close our eyes to the reality of conflict, guys, that's such a dangerous way to live because when we do that, what we're doing is we are stepping back from intimacy. That when we refuse to engage in conflict, we're refusing to engage and open ourselves up to intimacy. Many of us believe that conflict is a blocked intimacy. That's not true. Your and my refusal to do conflict is a blocked intimacy. Let me tell you what I mean there. When we think about conflict, a lot of us have all of these experiences that, that make us believe that conflict is yelling, right, or fighting or violent in some way. Those things, those things do destroy intimacy. But those things are, are a question of how we do conflict, not conflict itself. Yelling is not the same thing as conflict, okay? So you're right to not want to experience those things. But conflict itself is not the problem. No, when we block ourselves off from conflict, what we are saying is there are things in our relationship that we will not talk about. And the more that we have those things, well, we can't talk about this area because that's an area of conflict. We can't talk about this area because that's an area of conflict. We can't Pretty soon what we find is that all of our relationships become these incredibly managed affairs. That we're always managing our interactions with other people. We've got all these things that we can't talk about, won't talk about because they're too sensitive. And when we, when we do that, when we leave, live those kinds of managed and controlled lives, we refuse to be vulnerable or open ourselves up to any kind of meaningful, intimate interaction with the other. And this is not just good therapy. This is in our scripture this morning. When Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then what does he do? Then he jumps into conflict. So Paul uses five different words. He says in five different ways, I love you so much. And then he goes into, he calls out their conflict. He's stepping into conflict about their conflict. So he's saying, I love you so much, and because I love you so much, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room here. Because you better believe that everyone in the church in Philippi knew what was happening between Judea and Syntyche, right? So Paul says, let's talk about it. And we have to talk about it because I love you. Have you ever been in any kind of intense interpersonal conflict in your life? What is it? What is it like? You're to give me some adjectives. This is a, what is it? Upsetting? What else? Awkward? Awful? Come on, give me one or two more. I know. All consuming, yes. Uncomfortable, yeah. 
Those kinds of conflicts, I think all-consuming kind of captures all of them because what that kind of conflict does is it drains you, doesn't it? It's like someone has pulled the plug on the bathtub of your joy and you just watch it all drain out. And what Paul is saying is, I don't want that for you. We need to address that. The question is not if, the question is when. When conflict happens, how are we going to deal with it? And the question there is, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to lead? A life where there's actually closeness and intimacy with people or a life of just of managed and controlled relationships? Which is also a question of what kind of church do we want to have? A church where we all just smile, you know, nice on Sunday mornings and then talk each about each other behind each other's backs later? Or do we want to have a church that's full of real, honest, engaged relationships? And if we want that, what we have to be willing to do with each other is engage in conflict. That that's actually a way of us fighting for our joy and for each other's joy. Okay. So that's the reckoning that we have to do with conflict. Let's talk about the spiritual reality that Paul presents us in these verses. And I don't want you to miss that the spiritual reality that surrounds our conflict is really important to Paul. What we want, what I often want, is just give me the five steps, right? Just tell me how to fix it. Give me the book I need to read or the pamphlet, even better, right? Maybe a short PowerPoint, TED Talk, just really condense it down and I can put those principles into action and we can fix this and move on. Paul does not go from the conflict into the nitty-gritty details of the conflict. Paul actually zooms up and out. He reminds them of some much larger truths. In fact, some commentators actually believe that the entire book of Philippians was written to address this conflict. That everything in the book that Paul has talked about up until this point is steering to this moment where he steps in a very kind and gentle, loving way into the middle of a conflict that's destroying this church. What that means is that Paul potentially is bringing to weight the incarnation of our Lord into the interpersonal conflict between these two women. That he's applying that the biggest of all theological truths into this interpersonal interaction. So that's what we gotta do. We gotta look at what, what is the spiritual reality that Paul is grounding us in in these verses? It kind of makes me think of the movie Miracle. Do you guys remember that movie? Maybe some of you remember it happening. I don't know. It was a game in the Olympics between the United States. It was a hockey game. I'm trying to think of what year the Olympics were. Does anybody remember? 80, 80, 88? 84? 88. There we go. Okay. 1988. Uh, so the United States is facing off uh, against their avowed enemy, right, the Soviet Union, in this hockey game. Uh, but before they get to this point, the coach has to build a hockey team. And he's dealing with all of these disparate interests, right? He's got all these people who are on the team who are from all of these coll collegiate rivals. And when they come together as a team, they are n unwilling to cooperate because all of the baggage they bring from other parts of their life. And what the coach reminds them of over and over again is you are a part of a team now, and this team is bigger than your interpersonal rivalries. That what we are doing here together, what we're shooting for together, is bigger than all of this other stuff that you want to bring to the table. Our, our cause is not just your personal, uh, I, your personal convictions about uh, your college rivalries. The cause that's bigger than that is us, not just even us beating this other team, but he grounds this hockey game in the existential battle between communism and democracy. 
And that is really what gets people fired up, right? Okay. If that is true about this hockey game, how much more is that true about our spiritual reality in Christ, right? That the world systems that we are in, those things will fade. But the spiritual reality that Paul says that we are a part of is so much bigger and so much more lasting than that. That's what he's trying to draw us up into. And this is what he says about it in verse three. He says, who, the way he talks about it, is he says, whose names are written in the book of life. That's Paul's way of drawing the attention of this church up into a higher reality. He's talking about uh, their names being written together in the book of life. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, we talked about it a little bit last week that the Philippians had a lot of pride in their identity as Roman citizens, right? Their citizenship was really important to them. And Paul tells them, hey, your citizenship, first of all, is not as a Roman. Your citizenship is in heaven. So he grounds them in this bigger reality of their heavenly citizenship. And what was true in the ancient world in, in, in cities is that there would be a register that was kept of the citizens of that city. There was a book in which the names of the citizens of that city would be written. Okay? And what we know is that, as we talked about last week, Paul's picture of what happens at the end of time is that there's a new heavens and a new earth, and that heaven and earth come together as the place where God dwells. The picture of Revelation, Revelation 21, is the picture of a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city, coming down and coming to earth. And that at, at the day when Jesus returns at Judgment Day, what will happen is, it, metaphorically, this book will be opened, and those people who are citizens of heaven will be welcomed into this city where God dwells with his people. And that's the reality that Paul is reminding this church of. Saying you are a part of this heavenly city together. And you are going to dwell in this city. And that what this city is going to be like is that it's going to be a place where there is the, the ultimate intimacy. First between us and God, but that's going to flow out into the intimacy that we have with each other. There's going to be a oneness and a togetherness that we were created for with God and with each other. And he's telling this church, he's telling these women, your names are written in that book of life together. You will both be engaged in that heavenly reality together. And he's encouraging them, bring that heavenly reality into this day-to-day -day life. It's another way of praying the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's encouraging them, would you let that unity that is yours and will be yours in the future, would you let that influence the way that you live and think and relate to each other now? Jesus himself actually prays for this in John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. So this is a prayer, actually, that Jesus prayed for you and for me. This is John 17, verses 20 through 23. These are Jesus' words to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, that would be the disciples who are with him in that current moment, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world w may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I give to them that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That's Jesus' prayer for you and for me. 
that we would experience the same kind of unity that Jesus Christ enjoys with God the Father. And we often think about that in terms of denominational divisions, and that's a, that's a real thing. But that applies, guys, interpersonally to our relationships with each other in this church. That our hearts would be knit together in that kind of unity. That that would be a way that Jesus' kingdom would come and be manifested on this earth. And in verse 21 of that prayer, Jesus prays that they would be in us. And that phrase, in us, should remind you of a theme that we've been talking about all throughout Philippians. And it's the theme of our union with Christ. Right? We see that in Paul's words here. He entreats Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What Paul is doing when he uses this phrase, in the Lord, is that he's reminding them that Judea is connected to Christ. She is in Christ. And Syntyche is in Christ. And because they are both in Christ, that means that they belong as part of one body. They belong to the same thing together. They're connected organically and ontologically. What, what, in their being, they are connected to each other just like they're connected to Christ because they're connected to Christ. Paul uses that metaphor of body to describe the way that we relate to each other. Jesus loves the, the, the metaphor of family, that we are a family of God. And it's something you can't unchoose. To be in Christ means to be a part of this body. And this is such an affront to the way we live, isn't it? Such an affront to our autonomy. Because we are, we are such autonomous people. And wh wh how we are encouraged to live is that if we have people in our lives that are not maximizing our happiness, what are we supposed to do with them? Cut them off. Cut them out. Right? That's the way the world tells us to live. It's something that we have bought into. Hook, line, and sinker often. And what, what we're promised is that that's actually going to bring us happiness. And what we find is that it actually makes us isolated and incredibly lonely people, doesn't it? Think about the way that even works with family. That often the message that we receive, if our family doesn't support us the way we want, if, if they've hurt us, and uh, that, that what we're entitled to do is to cut them out of our lives. But that what we know in our hearts and what you've experienced is that there is a desire still for connection with your family, isn't there? That as much as you might even try to cut them out, that what you still experience is a desire for them and a desire for healing and reconciliation in those relationships. And what that tells us and reminds us is that it's true that as people, we are part of something that is bigger than ourselves. That that's good for us. That's true for us in Christ, that we are a part of a new body together, a new family together. And there's no way to avoid that. So that's the spiritual reality that Paul is grounding his friends in, in the midst of their conflict. Okay, so now we get to ask, so what does that mean? How would we live out of that? Let's look at verse two. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Well, that's helpful, huh? What we see Paul doing here is he's, he's, he's begging these women when he says come to an agreement in the Lord, he's not asking them to suddenly have all of the same opinions. 
what he's reminding them is that they are a part of something bigger than themselves. And he's asking them, would you come together and would you remember together that you're a part of something bigger than yourself? And when he says agree, he's talking about their minds but also their hearts. He's saying, would you be reconciled to each other? I'm begging you, be reconciled to each other. And he's, he says, I, in, I want you to notice this. It says, I entreat Udi and I entreat Syntyche. He does this symmetrically because what Paul knows about conflict is that when we are engaged in conflict, we're always looking for an upper hand on the other person, right? That if he had said, I entreat Udia and Syntyche to agree more, they would have been like, well, let's talk about who he asked, who, who did he entreat first, right? She really has the issue. And that's not what Paul does. He's not calling them to sort out who is right and who is wrong. He's not asking them to agree on the fact pattern of what's happened. On who said what and who is to blame for the conflict. What he's asking these women to do is to set aside their need to win the fight. He's asking them to set aside their need, their desire to be proved right. He's telling them that their joy and our joy can actually be found in losing the fight. That's a gut punch, isn't it, to our pride? I hate being wrong. Because here's the thing. We, we've talked about this before. No one talks to you more than you, right? That's especially true in conflict. And conflicts also become like beloved pets to us, don't they? That we love to feed them and nurture them. That we are always looking for, if someone has offended us, we are always looking for more reasons to be offended, right? More hurtful things that they have done. And we take those things and we feed them to the conflict just a little bit at a time. Does anybody else do this? Is this just me? Okay. <laughs> what we're looking for is more ammunition that says that I am in the right. We call that confirmation bias. We even get other people involved. That's a great way to feed this little pet. We love to tell them the story of what's going on and to see their reactions, right? <gasps> That's so horrible. You're right. It is. You're right. I am right. It's feeding the conflict, right? And what eventually happens is that pet becomes insatiable. And the conflict controls us. Maybe the little lizard that we, would, that we were keeping as a pet has become Godzilla in our lives, and now it terrorizes us and follows us everywhere. Okay. Here's the counsel of Scripture. This is what Paul is saying here, and it's, it's, throughout, it's throughout the Scriptures. The call is that we would put down our need to be proved right. And that we could actually do this at the whole beginning of the conflict cycle. That when we take that first offense, this is what Proverbs 19.11 says. It says, a man's wisdom yields patience, and it is one's glory to overlook an offense. It is one's glory to overlook an offense. That overlooking an offense does not make you a weak person. That actually indicates gospel strength in you. 1 Peter 4.8 4, says it like this, Above all, above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You think Peter knew what he was talking about? This is the man who asked Jesus, How many times should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? I'm so holy. And Jesus says, How about 70 times seven? Peter's like, Oh, okay. 
This is a man who knows what that means to let love cover a multitude of sins. And he knows that because Jesus' love has covered a multitude of Peter's sins. And, and guys, that is the crux of what we're talking about. That Jesus' love has covered a multitude of sins. Because apart from that reality, it is going to be impossible for you to overlook the offense that somebody else gives you. Because when Proverbs says you overlook an offense, uh, what that acknowledges is that there was an offense. When Paul says that love covers a multitude of sins, it means, excuse me, when Peter says that, it means that sins were committed. But the invitation here is that, that, that love would, in, would invite us to put down those things. Because here's what Jesus did for us. And we read about this in the call to worship, right? That while we were God's enemies, Christ came for us. That all of our sin, and this is, this is the, the clear counsel of Scripture, that all of our sins, even though they are expressed against each other, are ultimately sins against our Creator. That we sin against God all the time. And that that is where our Jesus moved toward us in love. And that Jesus didn't, God the Father didn't just cover his eyes to those things. God the Father paid for those things through the sacrifice of his son. And Jesus did that lovingly and willingly when he went to the cross. And that when he did that, his love covered a multitude of our sins. And now they've been thrown apart as far as the east is from the west. That, that God would say, I remember them no more. That he no longer holds those things against you. That's true for you in Christ. So when we're invited to let love cover other people's sins against us, to find glory in overlooking an offense, that's not us being weak people. That's us living in the strength, drawing on all of the resources of God's love for us to give that to someone else. That we're doing what Philippians 2 talked about, which is self-giving others' interested love. And the invitation is at the beginning of the cycle of conflict that we would do that when we take an offense. But the reality is that sometimes that's not, that doesn't happen, right? And even sometimes the hurt that we receive is something that's really hard to overlook, that we might find that as we try to overlook it, try to overlook it, try, we can't, we can't get past it. And, and the counsel of Scripture would be, it's a very appropriate thing then for you to go to your brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, can we talk about this? I feel hurt. But that, that in expressing that, that our goal there is not to get the other person to say, yeah, you're right. You're like, yes, I was, thank you. Now everything is resolved. No, that doesn't fix it. That what we're looking for is not to, to have someone else say, yes, you're right and I'm wrong. What we're looking for is the kind of reconciliation, the coming together of our hearts. And that comes in a conversation. And you know, as those things build up over time, what often happens is in those conversations is that you may find that you bear a part of the blame of the conflict that's been happening. And again, that's where the gospel is so important because the gospel is what allows us to say, because Jesus has come for me, because he's died for me, because my sins are as far as the east is from the west, I don't have to be afraid of those sins being called out anymore. I can look at them and I can say, you know what? That's probably true. I'm gonna go think about that and pray about that. I'm sorry. You have nothing to hide anymore. We don't have to be afraid of that. And then what we find there is actually that, it again, it generates intimacy because now we're in a place of vulnerability with each other. 
of talking about where we really are and listening to where somebody else really is and letting our hearts be brought together by the love of Jesus there. And sometimes, as I'm sure you've been in these conversations, you're, you think that you're trying to do that and it still feels like this, right? Has that ever happened to you? This is what Paul says. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. What he's saying is, there are going to be places in your life, there are going to be times in your life where you're going to be in a conflict where you need help. And you need an outside person with a, a mature perspective on the gospel to come in and help you. And again, it's an insult to our autonomy. But what it is saying, what Paul is saying here is that your conflict does not just belong to you. That your, your conflicts are actually the business of this body. Yikes. But that's actually a really comforting and loving thing because what that means is that you are not alone. When he says, I entreat you, true companion, there's all kinds, of, as always, there's all kinds of speculation about who this true companion is. What I think that Paul is doing here is he's inviting people in the church to step up into this conflict. Whoever it is. But other mature believers would get involved here and not to, not again, not to pick sides, not to prove who's right or who's wrong, not to establish the fact pattern, okay? But to say, hey, I, I want to be for you in bringing reconciliation in your relationship. And this is not to say there aren't times that the fact pattern isn't important. Okay, sometimes it is important. Sometimes you need an outside person to get to the bottom of something because there is real grievous sin that's been perpetrated one against another. And an outside person can be really helpful in bringing that to life, light. Yes, that's important. That's not what Paul has in view here. That's a, that's a different conversation. What he has in mind here is in an interpersonal conflict, someone who can come in and can help bring reconciliation between people. Just as we close this morning, I want to ask, are there conflicts in your life that you uh, have been avoiding? Maybe with people in this room, maybe with, maybe with the person that you came here with this morning. And what would it look like for you to believe that God actually has greater intimacy for you with him and with that other person by stepping into that conflict? Are there places in your life where God is asking you to let love cover a multitude of sins? Are there places where he's asking you to stop feeding the lizard who has turned into Godzilla and let love enter the equation? Are there, are there places where you need help? Where you need an outside voice to come in and say, hey, let me help you with this conflict. And if that's true, man, rejoice over the fact that God has shown you that. Don't feel shame about that. No, the invitation is that you would come and invite someone here into that. It's a delight for us to fight for that unity with you uh, and for you in Christ. And as we engage in that journey together, would we mature in the love that Christ has for us, in the reality and the glory of the gospel that we have a Jesus who came for us while we were still sinners that he died for us. And that as we delight in covering each other's sins with love and entering into that conflict that what we, we would discover more and more is the great love that our Father has for us. 
Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, for our time here together, Jesus. And we ask that you would be uh, bringing deeper intimacy between us and between you, Jesus, as we uh, step into this work of reconciliation uh, that is your work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.